Hi, my name is Jonathan, and I'm an alcoholic pothead. So uh, <clears throat> it's my uh, privilege and honor to be in service to any meeting, and especially this one, because uh, I was I experienced a couple of years ago the, uh, the phone community, and it really uh, let me know how special it is because there's people that can't get to meetings if it wasn't for the phone phone line meetings. Um, <clears throat> wow, where do I start? Um, I'm in Los Angeles. I was born and raised here. Um, I started getting high at 11 years old. And I... <clears throat> And it was all fun and games, and uh, I experimented with a lot of other stuff as well. But I started with pot. It was my first love. And my parents got high, and I dealt, and I, uh, and it was just everything. Everything in my life revolved around pot. And I didn't uh, have any other tools from 11 to 31 years old while I was uh, getting high. So <clears throat> that 20-year period was, <clears throat> there was a lot of fun, and then, then there was some problems. And it was fun with problems, and then and there was just problems. And then the police came, and they said, uh, well, you should probably find another way to live. And my lawyers agreed with them, and people at the rehab I went to as an outpatient agreed with them. And, and the lady in the uh, the rehab said, well, what's your, uh, what's your addiction? What do you do on a daily basis? And I told her I smoke pot on a daily basis. And she uh, made a phone call. And this guy got on the phone and he said, I'm going to come pick you up. And he took me to my first meeting. And it was a Tuesday night in February of 1992. And that was five days after my arrest. And I uh, I walked into the, a room of Marijuana Anonymous. And I, I knew about 12-step rooms. I had had friends that had gotten sober. And I never identified. I never thought I was like these people that had big problems. I was somebody who partied. I was somebody who had fun, got high. And I really uh, I really just didn't, uh, not only did I not identify, I didn't want to identify. I didn't want to be like anybody in the meetings. And I didn't want to, uh, I just wanted to deal with this and have people write letters to the judge so I could end up not going to jail and go back and live my life and teach my grandchild how to roll the perfect joint on my porch, on my rocking chair. Uh, the reality was is I didn't have a girlfriend at the time, let alone a wife. Yeah. So I was pretty delusional. Dream of my future that really wasn't much of a dream. And it really wasn't much of a, an accomplishment or anything. It was just die. And no matter what else happened, but luckily for me, I got arrested. So I had what we call around the rooms a court-appointed higher power. 
I was afraid of going to jail, so I kept going to meetings, and I went to every, all the meetings, and, but MA was my home uh, because I identified more with potheads and the stories that potheads had. Even though there was no book, Life with Hope, at the time, we worked out of the uh, AA Big Book. I went to AA Big Book Studies, and uh, I was doing everything in my power to figure out a way just not to go to jail. I really wasn't thinking about staying sober for the rest of my life or anything like that. But as I hung out, as I stayed sober for a while um, and started to work the steps because I was playing the game so well, I got a sponsor and I started working the steps. I saw how I was angry and lonely and tired and how I, how I really, uh, didn't know how to deal with life. I had no tools other than getting high. And then working through the steps and learning that I was powerless, you know, I, I kind of lived in blame and victim. You know, I blamed it on my parents, on my girlfriends, the teachers, the cops. I blamed my life and everything that was bad on everybody that was around me. And so I was very comfortable in the victim and in the blame. And then working step one, I learned how I was powerless over everybody else, and that I was responsible for my own behavior. And when I forgot that I was powerless, my life became unmanageable. I had a big problem with step two because I believed that there was God, but I figured God hated me, you know, because I had a lot of problems. My dad was very violent to me and my brother. And when my dad divorced my mom when I was nine, I found out that he was actually my stepfather, that my real father didn't want me. So, you know, we all have our reasons for feeling separated and different and less than. I felt the divorce was my fault. I felt that I wasn't really part of the family. I didn't know who I was. I was a very angry nine-year-old. And when I started getting high when I was 11, it changed things. It made me feel like everybody's laughing and everybody's having a good time. And it helped me deal with those, those thoughts and those feelings. But I, I really figured that, uh, you know, I had friends that died, and, you know, and there was just a lot of problems in life. And so I had no concept of God other than a punishing God who laughed at me, who when things got good, it was like the rug was going to get pulled out from under me. And I was, I always lived in fear of that when I felt that things were good and I was too happy. So coming to believe that there was a power greater than myself to restore me to sanity was a concept that I really couldn't grasp. Luckily for me, I had a big mouth and I went to these big book workshops and I asked questions and I argued with these people that had been around for a lot longer than me, that had a program, that had a concept of a higher power. And they said things like, go down to the ocean and try and stop a wave. Just know that there is a power greater than you right now. That's all you have to do to start. Know that there's a power greater than Jonathan. And that was an easy enough concept for me to, you know, kind of look at and <clears throat> contemplate. And so what I did was is I just kept going to meetings 
and I kept working my steps. And I heard other people talk about their concept of a higher power. And that it was uh, something from uh, a religion, or it was the universe, or Mother Nature. And I heard somebody say, it can be a doorknob. And I cross-talked and said, I don't get it. What do you mean? How can can a doorknob be my higher power? And the guy responded and said, right now all you have to know all you have to know is is that you are not the highest power. So I, I argued and I fought the concept, but I got to the point where I was a little more agnostic and I was like, okay, well, maybe it is, but you can't prove it to me. I still don't believe it, but maybe. So I came to believe that there was a power greater than me and that it could restore me to sanity. And when I looked at my behavior from the past, I saw how insane some of my choices were. Living in blame and victim was one of them. And I really, uh, I really just, um, I had to stop fighting that. You know, because in step three, to turn my will and my life over to the care of some higher power, I, I needed to have a concept of a higher power. And I, I needed to know what my, my life was, you know, my will and my life. And in a workshop, somebody said, could be your thoughts and your actions. You know, what's going on in your head and what you do. That's what you want to turn over. So that's what I did. Just very simply, I just thought about it that way. And I lived my life just kind of thinking about that as I acted. You know, and uh, there were a lot of concepts being thrown at me. Fear and ego, all these things. And and it was a steep learning curve for me. I I really, I I still didn't want this. I didn't think I needed it. You know, I was the kind of guy that would open the door at the bank and let somebody walk in, whether it was a man or a woman, old or young. And, you know, most people will smile, nod, say thank you. Occasionally somebody will say, you're such a nice young man. But one day this woman walked through the door and she didn't even look. She didn't say anything. And she took a couple of steps to the door. And I said, hey, what am I, the doorman? And she turned around, and I startled her, and she jumped, and and I saw the look in her face. And I realized at that point that I held the door open for people because I wanted validation. It was because of my ego, because I was selfish. It wasn't because I was a nice guy. I wanted people to say, you're such a nice young man. And I realized on that day that some people aren't in the moment. And when they aren't, it's not because of me and it's not about me. I don't know where this lady came from. She's going to come from the hospital. She's going to come from a funeral. I've got no idea what everybody else is going through or what their day or week or month or year has been. I still hold the door open for people. And when they don't acknowledge me, just put a prayer out for him. 
and whatever they're going through, I hope they get through it. And that's turning my will over to a higher power. Because Jonathan wants praise. Jonathan wants love. Jonathan wants to be told how great he is. But the reality is, is everybody's got their own stuff that they're working out and their own life that they're dealing with. And we have to be patient, loving, and tolerant of other people. I'm in my ego. I'm judging. You know, I'm putting them on a pedestal or I'm putting me on a pedestal saying I'm better than them. And either one of those things separates me from the human experience. So I have to be very careful. I still have those thoughts. I've been sober since the day after that first meeting on February 25th, 1992. February 26th is my sober birthday. So I got a lot of days, but I still have an alcoholic brain. And I identify as an alcoholic pothead because I smoke pot alcoholically. And I've been known to watch TV alcoholically and eat alcoholically and obsess on women alcoholically. And, and, you know, and it's just the way my brain works. But I've learned a lot about myself, but it's still there. I still have those thoughts. And somebody cuts me off in traffic. What an idiot. You know, and I might be right. But does that help me? Screaming at my windshield helped me. But speeding up to shake my fist at them helped me. No, just be glad you didn't get in an accident. Move on. Life's got too much, you know, to really worry about that small stuff. You know, and those first three steps are so important. That's what I was taught was the foundation of your program. You know, at that first meeting I was at, some guy bought me a big book. <clears throat> and I had no idea what the steps were or anything. And he said, so, do you, you believe that you're powerless and your life's unmanageable? And I said, sure. And he said, so, are you ready to come to believe there's a power greater than yourself that can restore you to sanity? I'm like, okay. And he said, okay, you're willing to turn your life, your will and your life over to the care of that higher power? I'm like, sure, why not? He said, good, you're on your fourth step. I don't suggest that you get to your fourth step that quickly. I suggest that you work those first three steps as honestly and thoroughly as you need to. You can do it in a week. It might take a year. It depends on who's sponsoring you and how much time you put into it. You can do it in a week. The first guys that did these steps, they did all 12 steps in one day. That kind of blew my mind. Because we do it a lot slower now, because we've got very busy lives. But uh, the longer you take, the longer it takes to get the promises. So I suggest that uh, you get to it. You get a sponsor and you do the work and you call your sponsor and say, I did this, now what do I do? That's your job. That's not your sponsor's job. That's what I learned the hard way because I just got a sponsor and then I never called him. But once I did start calling him and I did start doing the, the assignments that he gave me, it was time to do my fourth step. You know, and writing down, you know, the trick of the fourth step is they tell you, who do you resent? Who messed you around? Since I lived in blame and victim my whole life, it was easy. I had a list of hundreds 
of people and institutions, all my teachers and all my classmates and all my neighbors and all my friends and all my girlfriends and everybody that had ever crossed my path was on my resentment list for one reason or another. And what did they do to me? I'll tell you what they did to me. And how'd that make me feel? I'll tell you that too. But then there's that second part where they say, list your fears. And we didn't do anything on computers back then. And I, you know, <clears throat> there's a power in putting pen or pencil to paper. And if you can do it that way, I would highly advise it because I couldn't put the pen to the paper when it came to my, my fears list. I didn't know what happened. I literally couldn't write anything down. But I'd been around for a while, and I knew to call my sponsor. So I did. And he said, okay, pull the paper out, lift me on the phone, and I want you to write down fear of looking at my fears. That's your first one. And I wrote that down. And then from there, I was able to get through that and what they did to me and all the other columns of the fourth step. And then my harm's done to others, my sexual inventory, which was not easy, but I was honest and thorough as I could be. And then that fifth step came up. You know, and if you ask a lot of people, what's that fifth step? They go, that's when you share your fourth step with somebody else. That's not what it says. You know, we're sharing it with somebody else, but we're sharing it with our higher power. We're sharing it with ourselves. And in my experience, I was never as honest as I was to myself in that first fifth step. But I had written it down already. I said it out loud. I said out loud what I had done. I was selfish, I was a thief, that I was a manipulator, that I was a liar, that I did all these things, and I looked at my part. I'm there to look at the things I've done. I'm not taking anybody else's inventory, even though all those things came up dealing with it. But what I put down on paper was my stuff. <clears throat> not easy to look at. But I shared it with my sponsor, who's bored half the time. And he said, okay, next, next, next. We talked about certain things that I needed to elaborate on, and I got through that. And from there, I was able to really see what my my character defects and my shortcomings were. So I knew what I was ready to let go of, and I knew what I was going to humbly ask to be removed. And it's funny because when you have a character defect like being an impatient person and you ask that that be removed all of a sudden traffic stops and there's a line everywhere you go you're more aware of it than you ever have been you know and it just becomes you know hyper aware of this thing that you're trying to deal with but because I had meetings and because I had a sponsor I was able to share about it I was able to learn that I'm not the only one that feels that way. I was the one that, I wasn't the only one that had ever gone through that before. And I also learned that people went through a lot worse things than me. Even though I thought my life was terrible, my dad was terrible, all these things. 
and uh, that's a constant. I do a, a third step and a seventh step prayer in the morning after my morning meditation every day. And uh, I've been consecutive on that and more thorough in the last two years than I ever was in my first 25 years of sobriety. I did it occasionally. I did it when I needed it. I did it when it was convenient. Now it's something that I do before I do anything else. And I do that because I do it for me. I do my meditation and prayer because I got to take care of Jonathan first so I can be in the rest of the world to do what I need to do and to take care of other people. You know, they say you can't give away what you don't have. And if I don't have serenity, if I don't have a connection, it's very difficult to be there for other people at work or in relationships if you're not taking care of yourself. So at this point, I was at uh, I was at step nine or step eight. I had to make a list. And my sponsor told me, don't worry about the next step. You know, you might die. So don't worry about step nine. Just make a list. And the list I found was on step four because I had a part in all my resentments. So I had to look at all of those people and institutions and see what my part was. And I made that list. He said, don't edit. Don't worry about it. Through the process, we'll find out how you can make amends. And so I did that. I made the list and I started making amends. I got into the ninth step. And that's where the promises come in. The promises that are read at meetings from the big book of AA are the ninth step promises. You'll be amazed before you're halfway through. You'll find a new freedom and a new happiness. No matter how far down the scale you've gone, you'll see how your experience can benefit others. Those are the ninth step promises. But not the ninth step. Sometimes this happens to people occasionally. It happens to a different degree in everybody. But they're promises. They happen. And so I, you know, I, I dove in. I talked to my parents, one of which was sober, and my dad, who was not. And it was actually easier making amends to my dad than it was my mom, because she knew the program. You know? And uh, my dad, he felt terrible about all the things that he had done. And he was like, okay, it's all right. Don't worry about it. You know, because I told him I stole from him, and I lied to him, and I gossiped about him, and I had to admit all these things. <clears throat> and I learned that it's not just about saying I'm sorry. It's not like, hey, I screwed you around, I lied, and I stole from you, and I'm here to pay you back the 20 bucks I stole from you, or the 100, or the 1,000. I'm supposed to do that. That's part of the amends. <clears throat> but what I learned was is that through the process of doing this and admitting it to the person and to trying to make up for what I did, if I can, that I amend my behavior. But I learn from this experience in a way where I don't repeat that behavior again. Or we get to kind of put it in its place and say, that's how I used to act. And I'm going to straighten this out. 
we talk about cleaning our side of the street. And we do that so we don't have to live in that place of selfish, self-centered fear. In place of ego, where, you know what, he screwed me around worse than I ever screwed him around, so I'm not making amends to him or her or it. It's really a matter of cleaning my side of the street, learning my lessons, knowing where my character defects mess my life up, knowing that I don't need to go there because I don't want to live in anger and I don't want to live in fear and I don't want to live in resentment. It doesn't feed me. Life is too short. You know, in a couple of weeks, I'll be 59 years old and then I'll be in my 60th year. So I'm not a kid, but I'm not an old person but I know that life is short and I know that I don't want to spend whatever time I have left living in fear and resentment and anger. I want to be able to let things go. I want to be able to make amends to the things that I do wrong sooner rather than later. I want to have more joy in my life and be able to deal with loss and and fear as easily as I can. You know, in the last month, I've been to two memorials, and uh, they're people that I loved. That, that's part of life. Whether you're sober or not, that's going to happen. You know, so I, I'm really glad that I'm sober dealing with this stuff. Because I'm really able to be there for the people that are grieving that were even closer with that person. The lovers, the husbands, the wives, the kids. And to really honestly say, if there's anything I can do, I will do it. And I've been asked to do certain things. I was asked to say a eulogy at one of these funerals. My friend said, I can't say it. I can't, I can't say the words that I wrote. And I got up there and did it for him. And I feel blessed that I was able to, that I was asked to. And I was able to step up and, and be there in a time of need. When I sat down, I cried my eyes out because he was a friend of mine as well. And I, I, I could go on all night talking about things that have happened in sobriety that, that have blown me away. You know, I... I've met lifelong friends. My my brother's in sobriety, one of them, and uh, we're closer than ever. The girl that I married almost 20 years ago, I met the rooms. And I never thought anybody like that would come into my life and stay in my life. And I feel very blessed. You know, and I've also seen people that have been on this path with me that have gotten married and gotten divorced in sobriety. You know, that still happens. It's one day at a time. It's one relationship at a time. It's one job at a time. It's one moment at a time. You know, we do the best we can one day at a time. You know, seven weeks ago, I had a complete knee replacement on my right leg. And I've been dealing with pain and sleepless nights. I meditate every morning. 
I get into gratitude. I'm getting a little better every day. Even though there's still pain, I can't walk. I'm trying to get back to work, and I, I'm having trouble doing that. But there's a roof over my head. I'm not going hungry. I'm able to stay grateful for the little things and not focus on what's not working. You know, people tell me, they, they'll ask me the question, how you doing? And I tell them, I've got too much to be grateful for to complain about what's not going my way. My friend Ben's always says, I'm better than I think I am. Because we have that alcoholic brain. It says, oh, God, if you only knew what was going on in my head, I'm screwed. Well, you're not alone. I'll tell you, some of those amends that I made were very difficult. And some were a lot easier than I thought they would be. So my expectations were uh, thrown in my face. I learned early on in sobriety, somebody said in a meeting, that expectations were resentments under construction. Expectations are resentments under construction. I'm just setting myself up. If I do this and I do that, they'll do that, and everything will be okay. It's not the way it works. I'm powerless over everybody and everything else. I just have to do the right thing for the right reason. I have to open the door and hold the door because I think it's the right thing to do. Not so somebody will say, what a nice young man. I can't let my ego get involved. I got to just do the right thing for the right reason. And everything else is out of my control. You know, there were certain amends that I walked into where I said, this should be easy. And people told me things because I, I said, I said, yeah, I know I did this and I know I did this and I'm very sorry for that. And I'm sober now and I'm trying to live a good life and I want to apologize and, and I want, I just want you to know that. And if there's anything else that I, that I'm not mentioning that, that you remember, please let me know. I had a couple of people that have lists of resentments. The things that I did and I said that hurt them, that they'd been holding on to for years. I had to listen to that. And I had to learn how my behavior affected people. I learned a lot. And some of it was tough. But I was able to reflect on that and go, I don't want to be that guy anymore. I just want to be a better person. I don't need to cure cancer. You know, that's not my path. But if I can share on a phone for a half an hour and maybe help somebody stay sober another day or call their sponsor and say, okay, I want to work my steps, then maybe I've contributed to the world in some way. Regardless of what anybody else does, I know I'm going to stay sober today. I know because I share my story today, and I'm probably going to stay sober till I wake up tomorrow. You know, and at ninth step, you know, they say that more will be revealed. More resentments have been revealed. More bad behavior has been revealed. And more people that I owe amends to. And I was like, how are they not on, how are they not on my list? I don't, I don't get it. 
how could I have not put that on there? So <clears throat> the thing is, we become more and more open. I talked about it's like peeling an onion. You know, you get to one level, and then you're okay to learn more and go a little deeper. And that's what happens if you keep working the steps. If you keep on being of service, working the steps, staying in the program, you learn more about yourself and you'll get better. And life's still going to happen. There are going to be funerals and you're going to get fired and you're going to run out of money. And, you know, all that stuff's still going to happen. But you can get better. You can be okay in your own head. Just better. <laughs> okay moments, maybe. And that 10th step, that's taking that inventory daily and saying, you know what, I think I I I might have hurt that person with that joke that I told. This is something that still happens today. And I call them up or I talk to them the next day and I go, "Uh, that thing I said, that that might have come across in a bad way. And some people go, thanks for saying that. I appreciate it because it did. Most people say to me, nope, don't know what you're talking about. But it's not about that. It's about me being aware that I might have done something inappropriate. Because I don't want to go there. So it's important to do that. And that comes after the first nine. And that 11th step, you know, prayer and meditation, improving my conscious contact. I'll tell you, the last two years have been very different for me. My wife says she's noticed it. My brother, other friends. I'm I'm more calm. I'm more accepting. You know, so that's something that I hope I continue to do on a daily basis because it's working for me. And the twelfth step, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, I try to carry this message and practice these principles in all my affairs. I don't care who I'm dealing with. I try to have patience, love, and tolerance. I try to understand that I don't know what they're going through and that it's probably not about me if they're upset. I try not to take things personal. I just try to be of service for the right reasons, to be of service. Not to get accolades, not to be told how wonderful I am or to even get a smile. But I get that, you know, I get that. Just not all the time. And when I don't get it, that's the reminder that it's not about me. You know, the, the most important word in the 12 steps is the first word of the first step. It's we. We admitted that we were powerless and that our lives had become unmanageable. You're not alone anymore if you don't choose to be. You can always reach out to somebody can always say, hey, I'm having a bad day. How did you get through that? How do I get through this? And we don't have to figure it all out. We don't have to sit alone and cry. But sometimes we need to. But you can really help somebody else by asking them to be a service to you. Because then that gives them self-worth. How do you feel when you're able to help somebody else? Don't take that away from somebody by not sharing. So we is a very important part of this, and they wrote it that way, very specifically. It's in the plural. It's 
I really hope that, you know, that working the steps and being in the program can be a positive thing within this crazy day-to-day life that we live. I'm blessed that I have a lot of meetings that I go to that I can go to, and I, you know, and and that I'm working on this convention, which I've worked on many, and I hope I will see you all in Los Angeles on the, uh, what is it, the 14th of February? Yes, it's uh, Valentine's Day. It's that weekend. It's the President's Day weekend here in the United States if you're in another country. But we have great workshops and fellowship, and it's not just about staying sober. It's about having fun in life. It's about having friends. It's about having people you can lean on and letting people lean on you. So it's kind of strange talking, not being able to see anybody. I'm usually able to see the faces on the people to see if anybody's listening or they're getting it and seeing a smile or a nod. But like I said, I'm going to stay sober today. I really hope that I said something that will resonate and that if you need any clarification, I will put my number out there. If anybody wants to talk and we can, uh, we can take it from there. Again, thank you for listening. My name's Jonathan. I'm an alcoholic pothead.